grab our Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27, we continue our way through uh, 1 Samuel, doing the biography of David. And uh, the good news is, is that David's no longer the hunted, right? We, we have spent, how long has COVID been going on? Um, 14 years, just on that part of the Bible, right? Where David is the hunted. Um, but uh, that has come to an end. But now we see what is on the other end of that that narrative. First Samuel 27, you'll find in your pew Bibles on page 270. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose, went over, and he and six hundred men who were with him to Achish the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's wife, a widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns. I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that David, so that Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gerashites, the, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkey, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremihalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself another stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, I ask, as always, you would open our eyes, that we would see your glory, our ears, we would hear your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our hearts, that we would receive, our mouths, that we would speak, and our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Lord, this is your work, that you be faithful in doing it, and may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. May we see you. On September 22nd, 2015, America lost a, a, an icon, and that, of course was Yogi Berra. Now, for you Gen Xers, let me just be clear. I did not say Yogi Bear. Right? As an older millennial, I grew up on Yogi Bear, but I'm guessing that's more of a Gen X thing, and Gen Xers don't get blamed for a whole lot, so it's good to bring them up every once in a while. But Yogi Berra, of course, was a Hall of Fame baseball player uh, for the New York Yankees, bless his heart. And, uh, but Yogi Berra is remembered, yes, for baseball. He's really remembered for his witticism. That is an actual word I looked it up. His witticisms. I want to share with you some of my favorites. To begin with, one I use all the time is deja vu all over again. Love that. That just oh, makes me feel so much better every time I say it. Or he'd say, you can observe a lot just by watching. 
I couldn't help but think that I think every husband's heard a similar version of that from their wives, something like, you can learn a lot just by listening, right? I think that's what they say. Um, no one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. That's, that is COVID-19 in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> Baseball is 90% mental, and the other half is physical. I, I use something like that whenever I coach. Uh, I use the word hustle, <laughs> right? But the mental will work just as well. A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. Preach it, brother. Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. I don't really know what to do with that theologically. I just think it's funny. <laughs> so, uh, that'll get you ready for next week's sermon when we talk about witches and everything. Just in time for Halloween. Uh, congratulations. I knew the record would stand until it was broken. This is a new favorite of mine. You better cut the pizza in four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. I'm going to try that next time we go out to eat at a pizza joint. The future ain't what it used to be. That is 2020 in a nutshell. And then one of my favorites that I use occasionally, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Just take it. Well, I think just in the peripheral reading of this text, I think it's fair to say here David is at such a fork in the road. And the problem isn't that David took the fork, but that he took the wrong road. For months, David has been a fugitive. He's being hunted by his ex-father-in-law, and, and he's confused by this. What has he done wrong? He's hated by both his king and his nation, and he doesn't know why. At the same time, he's a leader now. He's a leader of 600 men, but as this text reveals, it's not just 600 men. It is 600 men, including their wives and their children. Remember that when you choose David, you choose to be a rebel, uh, an insurrectionist against Saul. So, so, so you can't just go out and hang out with David thinking it won't affect your family. No, your entire family must come and join David. So we see here the stress and the burden of leadership is weighing on David. And this is our sort of pressure, I was thinking reading it, that, that this is a unique pressure that only leaders can really understand. It's easy to be critical and to suggest what should be done in an organization. It is different whenever you're the ones uh, leading and, and doing what will be done. But the leader is always under such pressure, and the pressure continues to mount because he's not just fleeing for his life. He's responsible for the life and well-being of thousands of people. So what will David do as a result? How will he respond to the endless threats of Saul? And how will he keep his own men and their families safe? See, this is a fork in the road for David. He really has two choices. One is to stay the course and trust in God's providential grace, even though it will likely mean years more of being hunted by the king. Or secondly, he can choose to take matters into his own hands. And unfortunately, in chapter 27, David chooses the latter to take matters into his own hands. Notice that the text begins with the compromise. It goes out of his way to describe the, the compromise here. David is clearly tired of running from Saul, and so he comes up with a plan. And this plan is a reflection of David's heart. This is important for us to see because we need to see that the decisions we make are a reflection of our spiritual condition. 
You don't wake up one day and, and decide you're, you're, you're going to be this or that or choose this or that. No, they are a reflection of your spiritual condition. So if you get your, your spiritual uh, heart messed up, then, then the decisions you make will, uh, and, and the places you go and the words you use, all of that will be compromised. David here, he, he is in spiritual uh, turmoil. It leads him down a path of, of great danger. But notice how this is demonstrated in the text, particularly in verse 1. First of all, David trusts in himself. The chapter begins ominously there, doesn't it? David said in his heart. Now, obviously, uh, if, if you are familiar with the Bible, that's the problem. Anytime someone followed after their own heart, like all the Disney princesses tell you to do, whenever you just do whatever you just feel inside, whatever it might be, something bad is going to happen. A bad decision is going to be made. And, and so immediately the reader sees this and we should pause. The David that is trusted in the providential grace of God thus far, who has patiently put up with Saul, he's been very gracious in all of that. This is going to be a different David. And, but, but before we just get too critical of him, let us pause and consider the situation. Wouldn't you be tired of the situation David is in? In fact, aren't you a little tired of reading the same story over and over again? I mean, chances are you, you've been coming here on Sunday morning like, ugh. I hope Saul just gave up hunting down David. Give me something else, Jesus, please, right? We, we get exhausted by the narrative. Now, imagine if you're David and you're living months, if not years, of the same story. You wake up today and guess what? The king of Israel is seeking your head. You wake up the next morning, guess what? King of Israel still wants you dead. It's the same pattern over and over again. It is tempting to assume that God wants us to take matters into our own hands, especially from the constant, constant pressure from critics, family, and leadership. Think about it. In the two opportunities he's had to take Saul's life, what, what is, accompanies him? David, you got to do this. David, this is what you got to do. David, this is where we should go. David, this is what a real king would do. David, do this. David, do that. The constant pressure becomes too much. And what happens is David in his own self-confidence is tempted to trust in himself. But not only that, but David chooses fear. Notice the language there. He says, I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And wouldn't you think that too? Remember a few chapters ago how David was on one side of the mountain and Saul was on the other side of the mountain, but he was closing in on David. And if it hadn't been for the attack from the Philistines, David would have been caught by Saul. It was God's grace all over again. And how many times is David hiding in, in a cave? And guess who's there? Saul is right there. Right? And, and, and over and over again, David knows, or at least he believes in himself, that, that he will be caught. He will fail. This is what, this is the voice of one trapped in spiritual despondency. He looks at his situation and he assumes there is no escape. He will continue to flee and he will continue to run. He will continue to try to escape, but eventually his luck will run out. Now, there are two causes of this surrender, particularly in the context of fear. Two worth looking at. The first is, circumstances beyond his control. This is what's feeding his fear, circumstances beyond his control. David has tried to rationalize with Saul. 
He has tried to learn or lean into Saul's family. He has tried to threaten Saul, right? So, so early on, he uses Jonathan McCall, right? Saul's uh, uh, two kids to, 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 to pressure Saul to, to, to play nice. Uh, but here lately, he's been threatening Saul, isn't he? He cuts off a piece of his robe uh, and says, see, this could have been your head. And then later, he, he takes his, his uh, spear and says, look, this could have gone into your heart, right? And takes his drinking water next to bed. I, I don't understand theologically why that's there, but it's there. So he takes both of those things, right? And, and it's the show, I could have taken your life. And yet it doesn't matter. Whatever David does, he cannot uh, uh, bring reconciliation between him and Saul. That's one of the things about us Americans, isn't it? We really believe we can harness the wind. If we have enough insurance, if we buy a few security cameras in a new system, a little kindness can really change a stubborn heart, we believe, and good, invent, uh, good investments will protect us from the recession that comes. We Americans believe this, that we can control um, uh, peace. We can control happiness. We can control our circumstances so that bad things won't happen and things won't be outside of our control. We really want to believe that, but we're too much like David in that instance. So long as the facade of control appears real... We can pretend everything is okay. Yet when reality hits, we panic, don't we? Think about it. If the power were to go out in any city of these United States, what happens? We panic. We go berserk. And we riot in the streets. Think about that. All that it would take would be a blackout. And all of a sudden, all the civility that we've tried to control and maintain is gone in an instant. Chances are, you have been at this sort of moment of sorrow that David is in. When you realize you are not sovereign. It comes when that loved one of yours gets that terminal diagnosis. It comes when, with your child's persistent rebellion. It comes when your, your career is stalled despite your best efforts. It comes in a single car wreck, an, an internal lump, a slammed door, a single phone call. All of them in an instant can confront us with the fear that we are not in control. But not only that with David, notice it's, it's, it's not just circumstances beyond his control, it's circumstances beyond his escape. David's lack of control stirs within him the fear of no escape. No matter what I do, we might rationalize to ourselves, nothing is ever going to change. I've always been lonely. I've always been unwanted. I've never been good enough. I'll never know true happiness. And this pattern of anxiety and fear just feeds on itself. Surrender to an ounce of it, and before long, you'll be consumed by it, by the pound. David is surrendering to fear. He is choosing fear because of his circumstances. This is why we believe that if, if you allow your life and your emotions and your affections and your spiritual care to be shaped by your circumstances rather than be anchored in Christ, you will be tossed in a windstorm at sea. Up and down, sinking and floating, back and forth. But notice the third thing David does here in the very first verse of this compromise is that he rationalizes disobedience. He rationalizes disobedience. I remember at the Owen County Fair, this is something that you should all 
go to at least one time in your life is like Mecca if you're a Muslim, right? Everyone should go if you're ever looking for a good sermon illustration. No, all of Owen County comes, um, and, uh, and that's, the, that's, that's the problem, actually. Because um, you're thinking, <laughs> I haven't seen them in a year. Um, but I remember a friend of mine, we were nine years old, and uh, we wanted to do some sort of like little coin game. You had to be 18 to do it. We didn't know any different. We had like a dollar our parents gave us, and we were ready to spend it. It was burning a hole in our pocket. You ever have that problem? Ladies, ever have that problem? Um, <laughs> I got to get those flowers again, right? Um, um, well, we had this, and the guy goes, you got to be 18. And my friend and I look at you and go like, well, I'm nine. He's nine. That's 18. He looked at it. It's like, that is brilliant, right? Yeah, okay, can that work? Right? Well, it didn't work. In case you were wondering, you state workers, don't panic. It did work. And whatever gambling, whatever it is we were trying to do, I don't know what it was. You had to be 18. Uh, it didn't work. But you see how easy it is for us to compromise things that we know that we shouldn't do or can't do or apparently illegal to do, I guess, because in our age. Well, David is rationalizing disobedience. This marriage of self-confidence that we saw and fear, this feeling that, that I need to do something now and that I can do something now, leads David down this path of disobedience. It is not God's intention for him to, to uh, go to Achish. It is God's intention for him to take the throne of Israel. Now, in this long process of taking the throne of Israel is a process of discipleship. It's a process by which God is showing him what sort of king he needs to become. But he's got to go through the anvil. He's got to go through this difficult time in his life. But his impatience results in direct disobedience. Think about it. He goes to the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? If you've been with us, they're in all of this. The Philistines are Israel's enemy. It's Israel's enemy. And so he goes to them as a refugee. Now, if you've been following with us, David has killed a lot of Philistines so far in his biography. In, in chapter 17, he beats a guy, see if you're familiar with the story, Goliath. Remember that story? That's a Philistine. And, and the battle is won because David, when no one else was willing or able to do it, David conquered the, uh, the Philistine giant. Chapter 17, or he, he defeats the giant. Chapter 18, he tries to use, uh, uh, Saul tries to use the Philistines to kill David. Remember, this is before he was more hands-on-y. And, and so he used the Philistines to kill David. David ends up killing the Philistines. And out of that comes the song, Saul killed his hundreds, David killed his thousands. In chapter 19, David defeats the Philistines again. And so people continue the scene. Saul killed his hundreds. David killed thousands. Saul, or 1 Samuel 23, David defends the city of Cala against the Philistines while Saul was murdering innocent priests. Remember, the point of the story is to show us David is taking the active role of king while the actual king is committing genocide. And now all of a sudden he wants to join their team when he has this resume of battling them. See, David must believe in the old adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Those who know your history, this is, this is what we did in World War II, right? The Soviet Union were never our friends. They were our enemy. But we both had a common enemy called Hitler and Mussolini. And so the second they were gone, guess whose enemy we had? It was our old enemy, right? We didn't have that common enemy. And the problem with that adage is it assumes the enemy of your enemy is actually your friend, they're not. They're just now less of your enemy, distracted by a greater enemy. 
So David goes, thinking, look, we got this common enemy. Maybe we can be friends. But to Achan, she's not interested in friendship with David. He's entering, he's interested in a footstool against Saul. David is being used here. In fact, the chapter ends with Achish saying, now that I've got David where he wants him, he will be my servant. This is David, the great king, the man who's after God's own hearts. Here he is compromised in disobedience. I like what Alistair Begg likes to remind us in these contexts, that the best of men are men at best. Even the greatest of men are still men. And although David has demonstrated great courage and character, the stress and burden of the moment has become too much for him. And maybe you can relate. But it isn't just the compromise that we see in this text. There's also the consequence as a result of this compromise. This is chapter, or verse 2 all the way down to verse 12, the rest of the chapter. One of the great lies of compromise is that they can be self-contained. It is mythical to believe that you can do whatever you want and it will not affect anyone else. It's a lie. Every word you use, every decision you make, every compromise you take, every thought you have will in some way affect other people. It may affect your workplace, will certainly affect your home, your relationships, your church. It will affect other people. And that is true at the personal level. It's true at the cultural level. This is why character and godly character really matters. Now, notice how quickly David's compromise draws thousands of people in, verses 2 to 5. He, he, he goes over and 600 men were with him to Agish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And, and it tells us that, uh, that they brought with them all of their family, uh, their wives and their children. Thus, the decision David makes here will affect not only him and his family, it will affect the, the thousands of other people. Um, and this is why moms and dads, right? If, if decisions you make affect other people, moms and dads, the decisions you make today will affect your children and grandchildren. And, and, and this is why family is so important. You want to change your culture? Uh, change the home. The words you use, everything that we do, the things we tolerate, the entertainment we choose, the investment in their lives affects your children. Same is true in the church. Same is true in your workplace. Same is true everywhere you go. It is imperative that each of us lead with spiritual courage and character. But notice David's compromise breeds several consequences. See, we can get through these quickly. The first one is false security. It's there in verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now, the whole reason David fled to Gath was to escape Saul. He just wanted to be left alone. Reminds you of middle school, doesn't it? Right? I, whatever I got to do, I just, <laughs> can I change classes? You know? Yeah, yeah. So, someone remembers middle school. Um, uh, everyone is fond of high school. I mean, in theory, everyone talks about going back to high school. No one ever talks about going back to middle school years. You notice that? You have. I know you have. Um, it exchanging one burden for another burden never lightens your load. Compromise and disobedience is usually followed by relief and satisfaction for a time. And David here thinks, look, we're safe. Look, everything's going to be okay. Look, everyone, look, no one's going to be hurt. No one's going to die. Saul's going to leave us alone. This is exactly what we want. And initially, it looks like a brilliant plan, as does disobedience almost every time. People don't don't disobey because they know it'll make life more difficult for them. 
but because they see early evidence that it made life better for them. The problem is that eventually David gets a memo, an email, of course. Uh, it's first text to him, then he has to open his emails, a whole, whole thing, the way they do it in, in, in Gath. And he opens it up, and guess what he says? Guess what, partner, now that you're safe, I need you to go hunting for me. Run up the boys, get on your horse, grab your spear, you got some fighting to do. You see, everything was okay initially. That's, 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 that's why it's so tempting. And this is false security. You tell me, is he safer fighting for the Philistines than he was fighting against Saul? No. Because when he's fighting against Saul, he's in the will of God marching towards the throne. But not just false security is the consequence. It gets perpetual slavery as described here. Look at verses 5 and 7. David said to Achish, if I found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me when the country towns so that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days David lived in the country of Philistines was a year and four months, 16 months. By the way, this is probably about as long as COVID's going to last. I, I just wanted to bless you with that. Just wanted to encourage you. We're, we're, we're about halfway there, people. You can take that home with you and just be blessed. Just be blessed. Well, something strange has happened here, but I wonder if you noticed it. If you were to go back to 1 Samuel 17, verse 32, it says, David said to Saul, right, this is the story of Goliath, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with his Philistine. Notice, David is a servant here in chapter 17, isn't he? Whose servant is he? He's the king, the king's servant. Though anointed by God, all of that, he is the king's servant. But now notice, 10 chapters later, what it says right there in verse 5. Notice, he speaks of Achish the same way. Something has happened here. He has exchanged one servanthood for another, a lesser servanthood, a servanthood of disobedience. And the great lie of the modern age is that sin uh, creates liberty. That if only I just liberate myself from the shackles of, of morality, I just liberate my shackles from what my parents told me, then I can truly be, be, be free. And yet the modern age has proven the opposite. We're more morally liberated, we, we claim, yet we are, we are devastated with high rates of anxiety, depression, suicide, loneliness, and broken homes and everything else. Are we getting freer because of that? Or are we getting more constrained because of that? So when John says that the, the laws of God are not burdensome, he was not joking. Disobedience is burdensome. It is perpetual slavery. David cannot merely find shelter under the Philistines. He must slowly become one of them. And he cannot escape this. He cannot escape it because he can't go back to Israel now. And everywhere around him is the Philistines' enemy. He has chosen slavery in the name of freedom and security and peace. But notice thirdly what he chooses or the consequences is self-deception. This is verse 8 to 12. I suspect this is the part of the chapter that gets most confusing. Um, he, he rounds up the men and he fights against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Malachites. These names will be on the test at the end. Um, and you will have to spell them correctly. Okay? Do not get your I's and your E's mixed up and your G's and your Z's. Okay, Got to get it right. Um, these were the inhabitants of the land of Od as far as sure the land of Egypt. Now, um, what do we do with this? Well, uh, the David we meet here is not the same David we've been meeting, right? Because when he goes 
he's told to kill these people. And when he goes and, and fights, he slaughters everybody, men, women, and children. The reason he does it is because he doesn't want any eyewitnesses to survive. It's a different David, isn't it? Now, I would say it's a different David from the David from verse 1. Verse 1 is dipping his toe into compromise. Verse 8 to 12 is a David swimming in compromise. But you've got to start in verse 1 to get to verses 8 and 12. And this is where he's at. He is in compromise. He is stuck in this situation. Now, before, he would protect his fellow Jews even while a fugitive. He did it for, against the uh, four Ziphites and the inhabitants of Kalon and the Baal shepherds. But now, he is giving the appearance of betraying the Jews. Now, notice, it's the appearance of the Jews. Now, who, who are the Gershites, the Gerzites, and the Malachites? Well, they are um, sworn enemies of Israel, but they are neutral to the, to, to the Philistines. That's important detail. He is not fighting against the Israelites. He is fighting against Israelites' enemies. But he's fighting also against people who, against the Philistines, are neutral. Like Canada. Do you really care what happens in Canada at this point? No. Right? I mean, I get through ally. It's a joke, people. I know it's a political season. It's a joke. Uh, someone here is probably from Canada, and I just don't know it yet. But I'm about to find out. Um, so David is wiping out Israel's enemies under the guise that he's serving the king of, of, of Gath. Now, notice what he does in verses 10 through 12. He lies about it. When asked, okay, David, where you been today? Who you been fighting? Notice what he says. He doesn't say, oh, I fight the Ger Gerishites, the Gerzites, the Malachites, and those who aren't right. He doesn't know what he says. He says, oh, I've been fighting against the Negev of Judah, the Negev of Jeremihalites, against the Negev of the Kenites. Now, what does Negev mean? It's Hebrew. We've transliterated in the ESV. I don't know what your translation says. Negev means region of. What is he saying? Oh, yeah, we fought over there. That's the memo. That's the report. We fought over here. And then we fought over there. That's his answer. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's deception. Because he wants the security of disobedience without the burden that comes with it. He's living a lie. His life is marked by compromise, violence, and dishonesty. Now, how long do you think David can manage that lifestyle? Not long. See, sin will never secure for you peace. It will never secure for you love, lasting love, grace, mercy, contentment. Never. But you will always get what you pay for. One of the things I've learned in adulthood is that that truism is true. It's not a Yogi Berra truism, but it's still true. You do indeed get what you pay for. Whether it be food or products or cars or house, you will get what you pay for. If you are a cheapskate, as I too often am, you will suffer the consequences. But if you want what is best, it will come at a great cost. David chose what is cheap rather than that which is most precious. And how often do we do the same thing today? We choose that which is cheap 
and we suffer the consequences. We think, dip my toe into disobedience will have no cost. And before we realize that we've lost control, we're paying the price. The good news of the gospel is there was that came a son of David who knew the cost of disobedience and has paid it for you in full. If only, whether believer or not, would come and receive that redemption. Let us go and pray.